the gas station sells many of things. None of those are the healthiest for you. The bodegas can do a lot, but not enough. Um, and Seatown um, can do some, but not enough. Um, and we know that within our major cities, I know that map's a little hard to see, but right within our major cities, we see huge levels of food insecurity as a result of that access to food. So I'm assuming all of you at one time or another went to McDonald's with your parents when you were a kid. I know that the amount of french fries you got when you were a kid going to McDonald's is not the same number of french fries your kids get now when they go to McDonald's. So we know that our portion sizes have steadily increased throughout the years for really everything that we eat. And not only have our portion sizes increased, our plates have gotten bigger. And we, and we laugh because they're so silly, right? Because if you think about how big your plates are at home, most people would probably say that they're ginormous. Um, and we know that we tend to make food fit our plates. So if we have a lot of empty space on our plates, chances are we're gonna try to fill it by putting in extra food. And as a result of that, we're gonna end up with a lot of calories. Ironically, today in Hartford, they're talking about the sugar tax legislation, legislation that would tax a penny an ounce every time you purchase a sugary beverage at a convenience store. Um, so this right here would cost you an extra 20 cents. And we know that as portion sizes have increased, um, the amount of calories that comes with that, the amount of sugar that's consumed with that has increased as well. And we know that our messages and our environment that we live in is just ridiculous sometimes, but we also know that we like a bargain. Truth be told, how many of you have gone to the all-you-can-eat buffet and gotten a little bit of extra extra because it wasn't any more money, right? So we know that we like bargains, we like to get a little bit extra when we can. For anybody wondering, that is a bacon cheeseburger and a Krispy Kreme donut. Um, <laughs> available at the Big E, where you can also get fried butter and fried Kool-Aid. Um, and if you go to a Major League Baseball park, this is apparently now being served at all Major League Baseball parks, that is a churro in an eclair with an ice cream sundae on top of it. <laughs> if you get hungry and this has an stretch or something like that. And we also know that our um, environment has changed. Kids' concept of play is very different. So the generation before mine was the generation of climbing uphill both ways to school with you know holes in their socks or whatever. And I have now become that annoying adult that tells kids, you know, when I was your age, I used to have to go outside and play after school. Um, and I used to come home and the streetlights came on. And kids look at you like, what'd you do? Like you didn't have an iPad or anything like that. Kids' definition of play is very different nowadays. Um, some of our kids can't have access to play areas. They don't have backyards, or if they do, their parents are not going to let them go out there to play, um, or they don't have access to green um, space. And we also know we're very hooked onto our technology, and it starts very young um, nowadays. So it's always amazing that kids that can't spell their names yet can find YouTube videos very easily. Um, but we're all kind of connected to our phones. I would argue that most of you, if you have not already, will check your cell phones before this grand rounds concludes because we're so kind of hooked onto our technology. So what are the consequences? Probably one of the saddest things about um, obesity is I think there's a, a misconception that it's just about weight. If you just you know, go on a treadmill or you know, maybe get snacks and stuff like that, um, your weight it would all just kind of go away. Obesity is so much more than that, and there's so much that kind of gets added on to kids. And probably the saddest part about obesity is how much it takes away his ability to be a child. So I think we all as clinicians have those experiences or those moments in um, sessions where you truly understand the impact of what you're working with. Mine came a few years ago when we were running a group program for 
four and five-year-olds that were obese. And Christine Monaghan, who you may know as a previous PT here, was eight months pregnant and came to class to teach kids how to be active. And so at eight months pregnant, she's leading kids through, you know, taking big strides and stretching and things like that to get them active. And it was all fine until the bunny hopping came in. And she asked him to hop with a bunny. And about three hops in, we had our first kids start projectile vomiting in the corner because they were so overly exerted from hopping, their four, um, but they could not sustain anymore. And they were puking in the corner. And about two hops later, we had another kid completely crawl out on the floor with her grandmother standing over her saying, why aren't you hopping? It's just hopping. And her and the grandmother looking at me and saying, Dr. Santos, she can't hop. Why can't she hop? And that realization, I think, for that grandma and I think for us at that moment about that's the true impact of obesity is how much it takes away from a kid, in addition to all the other stuff that kind of comes onto it. You guys all see obesity in your clinic because kids are presenting with medical conditions that they never used to have before at this age. We never used to talk about type 2 diabetes in kids with single digits. Whenever we used to talk about fatty liver in kids with single digits, these aren't things that we used to talk about. Those are diseases of middle-aged truck drivers. So we're seeing them younger and younger in our kids, and that's becoming the devastating effects of that. The kids that get picked on at school, that aren't sure they're gonna fit behind their chairs and their desks at school, that aren't sure they're gonna make it to class because they only have four minutes and it takes them a little bit longer to walk than that between their classes, that becomes the impact of childhood obesity. We also know there's a chronicity to it. 90% of adolescents with obesity will remain obese into their 30s. And probably the saddest statement of this came from our former Surgeon General, which stated, because of the increasing rates of obesity, unhealthy eating habits, and physical inactivity, we may see the first generation that will be less healthy and have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. That's just sad to think about that. And if you want to take it in another way, most of you are familiar with the concept of health-related quality of life. It's the way that um, kids are impacted in terms of their physical, emotional, social, and school functioning and their quality in those areas. We have known historically that children uh, diagnosed with cancer and receiving chemotherapy historically have the lowest rates of health-related quality of life when we compare them across the board with other pediatric conditions, including type 1 diabetes, heart disease, and arthritis, until you meet kids with obesity. With kids with severe obesity have comparable health-related quality of life, life issues and scores comparable to kids with cancer receiving chemotherapy. That's stunning when you really think about the impact that chemotherapy has on the kid and to think that that equates to kids with severe obesity. So how do we treat um, pediatric obesity? The expert recommendations advocate for a staged approach um, to obesity treatment, um, starting in the pediatrician's offices, <coughs> increasing within the pediatrician's offices, and then when those aren't working very well or there's more concerns, it's a referral to um, more intense care or our programs here at CCMC. So if you're not familiar with our programs here at CCMC, we are a stage three and a stage four program. As Magna said, we have both a non-surgical and a surgical um, track for our programs. And I'll just tell you briefly about um, them because I do think they're, they're pretty unique in terms of what we offer. In terms of our stage three programs or what people may know as our FIT5 programs, um, we only have one criteria for entry into our program. It's a BMI greater than the 95th percentile. We will take anyone. We don't um, care what medical conditions they have. We don't care what physical conditions they have. They don't have to speak English. They don't even have to be all that motivated. We will take um, anyone into the program. Um, 
and we'll take any age. So we start getting referrals about age one, and we go until about the early 20s in terms of our referrals for our non-surgical program. We are a full multidisciplinary team with our medical um, physicians, psychology, nutrition, and physical therapy. But everything we do is family-based, and we think that that's really important. If you as a grown-up won't give up your soda habit, we're not going to ask your kid to do it. If you as a grown-up won't put your phone away, we're not going to ask your kid to do it either. So we sort of feel like parents have to set the example. And if that's too hard for you to do, then it's maybe going to be a little too hard for your child to do, and we'll move on to something else. We do groups starting at age three, um, so three to five, six to nine, and then our 10 to 18-year-olds. And we also do um, an individual track for those that can't do group, which means monthly. So we get a lot of kids that are on the um, spectrum and a lot of kids that have severe psychiatric impairments that would just make being around a lot of people in a group challenging. Um, so for them, we'll create an individualized um, monthly program for them. And then we have our stage four programming. So as um, obesity has continued to escalate, our interventions have had to escalate as well. We launched Super Kids last year, um, led by Priya Fuwani um, in endocrinology. Um, and we've just done a couple different things for this. We've attempted to hospitalize some kids here at our hospital um, utilizing rehab. Um, we've learned a lot from that. I don't know that we'll do it again, but we've learned a lot from that experience. Um, and we've also started a medically supervised program where um, she will attempt to put kids on medication or we'll work with nutrition to start them on a different diet with the goal to lose weight quickly. So these are often targeted for kids that need to lose weight quickly either because they need to have some other kind of surgery done and there's concern about their ability to be under anesthesia or being flat on their back um, or they're just starting to have a lot of physical limitations and they're not appropriate for surgery yet but they need to get some weight off their frame quickly. And then probably our most intense option for treatment is our bariatric surgery program. This is a minimum age of 14 with a BMI um, of 35 with a medical comorbidity or a BMI over 40. We offer two procedures, the adjustable gastric banding procedure, which if you're not familiar with it, is just the placement of a band on the upper portion of the stomach, creating a new pouch at the top that's like the size of a small egg, and the sleeve gastrectomy, which is the removal of approximately 75% of the stomach out of your body. So your stomach goes from looking like a stomach to a banana or a sleeve. Um, so it kind of has that shape onto there. People often ask, does treatment work? Yeah, if you, if you show up, it, it works well. So we know for kids in our group program, our Fit 5 group program, they have significantly decreased BMI scores at six months. That's the stage one year. Um, and the stuff that I hear about is the psychologist that kids' moods seem to get better. So the amount of kids reporting those symptoms of depression tends to increase, while clinically significant depression decreases, and kids' anxieties also decrease as well. This is our first kid who has a, has a sleep gastrectomy done. This is a kid I knew for five years before he had surgery. He never lost a pound um, before surgery despite playing football um, and having families really motivated, getting a personal trainer, making all the sort of changes at home that needed to get done. Um, this is his weight trajectory after, or you know, one year after he had the sleep procedure done, down over 110 pounds in that first year after having the sleep gastrectomy done. But we know that treatment has its limitations. We know that um, research tells us that many youth will regain their excess weight within two years of completing a non-surgical weight management program, and that treatment dropout rates can range a whole lot from 27 to 73%, kind of based on how people define the treatment dropout rate. And while I showed you that pretty slide of, of um, 
our patient who lost a lot of weight in the year after his sleep gastrectomy. I can also show you this one, um, which is the kid who had surgery on the exact same day. Um, and so we know that any of our interventions are only as good as we can kind of keep them going. But even think about for all of you, how many of you set a New Year's resolution every year to go to the gym or eat healthy and have it last longer than like January 10th? Because right, you drive by the gym, then the first week of January, they're packed and you can't find a spot anywhere. By the second week, nobody's there. Um, so we know that sustaining healthy changes can be hard and that's kind of what we want to focus on. And as a result of that, what we've done um, in the obesity program is really craft the line of research all centered around the idea of really wanting to improve clinical outcomes and wanting to improve, improve the treatment outcomes that we're seeing for our kids. So we have a variety of them um, that we offer, that we have ongoing. I'm gonna to talk to you about two of them, one that we're doing in our non-surgical program and one that we're doing in our surgical program. Many of you may uh, remember Lizzie Estrada, who um, was our former medical director for our weight management program. She and I were very fortunate many years ago um, with the help of Paul Dworkin to participate in a focus group called Focus on a Fitter Future through the Children's Hospital Association. And for several years, we met up with other children's hospitals. And as part of that, we got to participate in several multi-site studies. Through that, we really spent a lot of time focusing on who's dropping out of treatment, why are you dropping out of treatment, and what may we, we be able to do to improve that. Through our work, we found really three major um, factors that parents have consistently citing as reasons why they were dropping out of treatment. One was the lack of individualized care. The second was the lack of flexibility in appointment times and locations. And the third was transportation barriers. We started with looking at this one, which is the lack of individualized care, because it is sort of interesting when you think about it. For as much as I've talked to you about the complexity of obesity and how much um, there's so many factors that go into obesity, our treatment is pretty simplistic. Eat less, move more. We get real fancy to eat better, move more. Um, but at its core, that's obesity treatment. Magnet crisping will operate on your stomach, but the recommendation is still gonna be to eat less and move more because that's what the ongoing kind of treatment is. And that gets complicated. So if you're a kid who lives in, in Hartford and has asthma, which pregnancy seems like a lot of our kids, and you're probably staying indoors, particularly in the summer, because your parents don't want you outside for fear that you're gonna have another asthma attack and have to hear, go on your steroid treatment, that's a problem, but you're still gonna get eat less, move more as your treatment recommendation for obesity. If you're a kid with sleep apnea, who won't wear your CPAP, because what teenager is gonna wear this contraption on their face at night, um, and so you're falling asleep at school and then you're getting home and you're exhausted so you're going to sleep and then you're waking up maybe for dinner and then going back to sleep and then you're up at all these god-awful times, how are you going to deal with eat less, move more? Probably not so hot. And if you're a kid with depression who's getting kicked out at school all day long and you come home from school and you eat two boxes of Girl Scout cookies because that's what we all have at home right now, um, because it makes you feel better, but then you feel really bad because you had those and now you're going up to your room and you're crying and you're sad and you're wondering if a pair of scissors to your stomach to cut away the fat rolls would make things better. You're gonna get eat less and move more too. I feel like overall is better. And if you're, <laughs> you too can get eat less and more. And if you're a kid with chronic pain, I don't know how many of you are chronic pain sufferers that really want, when you're having a bad day and not feeling good in your body, to be told to go for a walk and eat a carrot 
but that's obesity treatment in a lot of ways, and you're going to be told to eat less and move more too. There may be some inherent problems with this when we're not treating the whole child and thinking that obesity is the overriding condition that overrides the whole child and what needs to be the focus of treatment. But we decided to look at um, pain and obesity a little bit more in conjunction with our division of pain medicine um, because we knew a couple things. We know that pain and obesity are, are connected, and we know that the higher the BMI, the more that you're likely to report back pain and limitations in your activities, fractures and muscular skeletal pain. Um, if you have a GI disorder, you're more likely to report more pain intensity and pain episodes. Migraines are more likely in kids with higher BMIs. And in work we did in our pain program, you're more likely to wait longer before somebody will take your pain seriously. So kids, when they were referred to the pain program, if they had a higher BMI, they had pain for almost three and a half years um, versus kids who didn't have a higher BMI and got to the pain program within a year and a half. Now this is all stuff we know from pain programs. We didn't know so much about what it was looking like in obesity programs. And that's what we wanted to focus on. So we took a moment in time in our kids, 107 consecutive kids presenting for non-surgical weight management programs, an average age of 12, 65% female, an average BMI of 37. That's typical for us, whoever said, wow, that's, um, that's typical for our, our, our kids. Um, in terms of do kids experience pain, yes, 70% of our kids um, report pain upon um, entry into our program, which was really astounding when we thought about it, but then it kind of made sense a little bit. It had never really been documented in terms of people looking at that. And so then we wanted to know, well, where do kids start to experience pain? And the number one place was headaches. So the most frequently occurring um, pain that kids were experiencing were headaches, followed by the ones that I think we thought more likely, which was back pain and knee pain, followed by foot pain, ankle pain, kind of all the joints and stuff that we um, thought that we would likely see. And most kids reported pain in more than one area. So 61% were reporting pain um, in more than one location, and so on. Then we wanted to know how bad was it. And this is um, using uh, Phil scale of pain burden that he validated in the sickle cell kids. And what we found was when we looked at kids with obesity, they were scoring one point lower on the self-report measure than kids with sickle cell in terms of how much pain is burdening them in their everyday lives. That's really stunning when you think about it in terms of, I mean, think about for you all as providers, if you have a 350 pound kid who's coming into your office and saying things hurt, what's your treatment recommendation for them and what are you gonna tell them to do? Besides eat less, move more. Many people will say that's the treatment recommendation and maybe not take the level of the severity of pain that they're experiencing seriously. Um, every family that comes into our weight management program completes something called a readiness ruler. How ready are you or how important is it for you to make changes and how confident are you to make changes? And one of the things that we've known for a long time for families that enter our program is that everybody knows it's important to make changes not everybody's so sure they're confident enough to make changes. And so our, our families, they get perceived as low motivation, they don't have any motivation to make changes. Oftentimes it's not that they're low motivated, they don't have a lot of confidence. And so when we split the, the data to look at the kids that had pain versus the kids that didn't have pain, we saw kind of what we typically see, which is that importance was high for both um, populations. Um, but when we looked at confidence, this is just what it looks like, when we looked at confidence, the confidence scores did go down. And they went down a little bit further for our kids that were reporting pain um, for both the parents and the child as well. 
we knew there was something there that somehow this additional kind of impact of pain was really impacting these kids in a different way. Um, and I think if anybody is interested in that ruler, I can get them a copy of that. And then we kind of spot in the depression score. So we've given two different measures in this population. And really, regardless of measure, I think a little bit um, more for this one, we saw a huge difference in the levels of depression symptoms for kids reporting pain and those not reporting pain. And then what we didn't like to see was that those reporting pain were more likely to drop out of programming or not even begin programming than those without pain. And when we went back and I looked back at the capture of a moment in time of looking at our data of the kids that had dropped out, 90% had reported pain upon program entry. So where does that leave us? We now have a vicious cycle of childhood obesity, and now we've got a cycle of pain that's being added onto it if we don't figure out a way to target and meet these kids and keep them engaged in treatment. So um, our next step of what we're trying to do to kind of bridge that and reach these kids um, is an intervention we call pain and weight treatment. I spent a lot of time on that logo, just as an FYI. Um, which is a brief intervention designed for youth with pain entering our weight management program. Um, the goal is to transition away from treating obesity and isolation and to personalize treatment by targeting commonly presenting comorbidities. Because let's face it, if you have pain, and I'm gonna tell you to eat less, move more, is the eat less, move more gonna work if I haven't taught you how to manage your pain very well? Probably not. And maybe there'd be something to be said that eat less, move more might work a little bit better if we've given you the skills to manage some of the other things kind of going on in your world. The current design of it is a three-session cognitive behavioral uh, intervention targeted at pain skills. With the goal of whether or not if this works within the pain population, can we target it to other conditions? So we had, I just had a conversation yesterday with a mom whose kid has severe sleep apnea. They're going through the process of getting that treated, and she said, he's so tired all the time. Wouldn't it be better if he did treatment after we've kind of gotten his sleep apnea under control and gotten him compliant to CPAP? Well, there's something to be said for that. And if you're a kid with depression, maybe we need to do something with you first to kind of help manage your depression before entering you in the, in the eat less, move more kind of therapy that we have. And that's our kind of goal where we're going towards our next steps is really trying this out to see how does this work and might this benefit other conditions as well. But with that, we're also wondering whether or not it has to occur in person. So remember from our multi-site studies, families don't like our appointment times, our locations, they have transportation problems, kind of all those things kind of get in the way. So we wanted to see, could some of this stuff be done with technology? And so we launched a technology study in our bariatric surgery population to see whether or not some interventions could be done, not face-to-face, -face, but over your phones, because if we can't beat them, we might as well join them with their technology, and see whether or not any of those things might help. So our bariatric technology study stems from clinical concerns regarding the number of patients unable to make changes to progressive surgery and those who drop out prior to making it to surgery. It's not really a well-documented fact, but our program is pretty consistent with other adolescent bariatric surgery programs, that for every 10 referrals we receive to bariatric surgery, two make it to the table, three if we're lucky. And that's pretty standard across adolescent programs. Now some of that is because some of the referrals may just not be appropriate, but other times it's because kids get discouraged, they feel frustrated, it's a long path to surgery, and they drop out along the way. We also are dealing with adolescents who hopefully then eventually kind of go away, they go 
go to college, they leave the home, in the process we lose them in a, in a transition during that time um, as well. And we wanted a way to kind of keep them um, more engaged. We also started this project because we were getting a lot of reports from families that they wanted more frequent contact with us and wanted more immediate contact, but they didn't want to come to Hartford to see me. They didn't want to actually make an appointment, get in a car, come here, but they wanted that contact um, with us. And I think part of it stems from us as a program too. So um, this is data from our bariatric support group. So support group is pretty standard of care for bariatric surgery. We meet once a month, you drop in, it's, you know, we consider it required prior to surgery. But what we had saw in some of our preliminary data was that kids that attended more support group after surgery lost more weight than kids that attended less, which was kind of a nice finding because we always tell kids like it would be better if you come to support group, but now we actually have like the data to show them that this really works. But we felt like there was something there that if we can increase their frequency, they might get better outcomes. So we came up with three um, interventions or add-ons or modules or whatever you want to call them that families can select. This isn't a randomized control. Families can select to participate in none, one, two, or all three of the interventions. So they can select to receive a weekly text message from us. They can participate in our secret Facebook page, um, or they can do our support group online. We're collecting a whole bunch of data. Right now, what we're looking at is how acceptable and feasible the interventions and the technologies are for kids um, with the long-term goal of figuring out whether or not their participation in these interventions leads to improved outcomes in terms of weight loss, a reduced time to the surgery table, and retention after surgery. Let me tell you a little bit more about what the um, interventions actually look like. So if families sign up to do our text messaging um, intervention, they get a text message from me every Sunday afternoon with some kind of healthy tip uh, to try for the week. Um, and it's Sunday because you know we always try healthy stuff on Monday, so that's why we get it on Sunday night. Um, and so it's an app to try, a recipe to try, some new behavior to try, just something that we know we want them working on in order to um, stay <coughs> after surgery and be better candidates for before surgery. So we're tracking the number that we send, um, as well as um, tracking how many times we get a text back. We participate families in everything that we do, so family member also gets the text message from us, so one patient, one family member. And then we have our, our Facebook page, um, which is secret, so nobody can see that you're participating in it, nobody can see your posts, you can't share anything off of it. Um, so there's a very limited lack of uh, confidentiality being broken or anything like that. We post healthy tips several times a week, um, and we look to hold Facebook chats um, once a month. And what we're collecting through this are the interactions uh, with Facebook through likes, responses, and attendance at chats. And then we converted our online support group to Skype. And we held it monthly for one hour, um, collecting the number of online support groups that our um, kids attend. So as I mentioned right now, we're kind of looking at feasibility and acceptability for both patients and us as providers. So I can just tell you briefly, um, when we initially went to study, start the study, we were only going to offer Facebook. And thank God we did not, because nobody does Facebook anymore, except your parents and grown-ups. Our kids don't. So of all the interventions, probably about 10%, 15% have signed up to do Facebook. Everybody has signed up to do text messaging, and 
about like 90% of the online support groups sort of thing. Um, our families like it. Um, they report liking to get, particularly the text messages, trying the things that are um, suggested to them, if it's an app or a recipe. Um, we've had a few technology hiccups that we've learned along the way. Um, so I text kids through my email. So I email them and get to their phone with a text message. They can text me back and it shows up as an email. Um, Verizon apparently only wants me to tweet because they cap the number of characters in which I can send an email or a text to um, patients with Verizon as their carrier for some reason. So we've learned that along the way that I need to be brief in what I'm saying. Um, and we've also gotten feedback from them in terms of other interventions that they would like to see. So um, as one kid told me, only old people use Facebook and that I should look at Instagram or Snapchat. Um, as a different intervention instead of Facebook. Um, I think for our providers, um, I think our providers like the ability to offer an additional thing to our kids and an additional thing to offer them and knowing that they can get an additional um, level of support. Um, I'm the one that does the text messaging. I'm also the one that updates Facebook. I probably spend a grand total of five minutes a week on this study, which is a relatively low um, time investment for what we hope will be an increase and a good payoff for kids um, afterwards as they've been engaging in the intervention um, a whole lot more. We know that this study will likely change over time. We're in the process right now of submitting an NIH grant with Children's National in DC. Um, right now our text messages are standard flat across the board. You get the same text message regardless of whether or not you're before or after surgery. And we're working with them to create more culturally sensitive and appropriate text messaging interventions because of our large um, Hispanic and non-Hispanic black population. Um, but we know that technology changes frequently. And so we try to look at other ways to get kids engaged. Um, one is a, an app called StrideKick. Um, so for those of you that like check your steps and count your steps every day, some people use a Fitbit, some people use their Apple Watch, some people just use their phones. StrideKick allows everybody to together in terms of a stepping competition. So you can sort of see how many steps you've gotten versus the bariatric surgery program and whoever's carrying around the steps for the bariatric surgery program. And so we've thought about um, introducing this to see whether or not kids might like to engage in a little bit of healthy competition of whether or not you can beat the doc in the number of steps they take each day. Can you outstep them um, along the way? And then we know, and people always laugh when I show this, but Pokemon, has done more for our non-surgical weight management program than probably Michelle Obama did in eight years in the White House because in, in one week we now had this great technology for our kids, particularly on the spectrum, who don't want to get off their technology, have a very narrow um, interest range. But good gosh, do you know how many Pokestops there are around this hospital? And you can take a full block around here, not that I've done it with the kids, but you can go to the Girl Scout house, come down the IOL way, come back through the emergency room, and you can get many a Pokemon that way and stop at many stops along the way, and kids get a lot of steps in that way. And we know that Pokemon might not be for everyone, but maybe there's something there um, in terms of how we can help engage kids um, in movement and exercise that doesn't seem so dreadful and kind of seems like it can almost have fun um, with it. Um, just to conclude briefly, um, you know, obesity is a complex condition and involves a lot of multiple components. And we know that treatment needs to better reflect the concerns of our family and be better tailored to address their complexities. Um, 
and that's where you all come in. So remember I started off this grand round by saying that I wanted to hear from you all, and I hope you all will seriously take me up on that. We hold meetings throughout time. We have clinical meetings, we have research meetings where we're launching our family advisory board, and we really want input from other providers that manage with obesity day in and day out, our specialty providers, our community pediatricians, because we know that we can do a lot to um, improve care for these kids, improve the, the continuum of care for these kids, um, and so we would love to, to meet with whoever is interested to kind of work on that. I just want to thank the Division of Pediatric Surgery, our new medical home for, for weight management, for um, welcoming us to a new uh, pretty space. Um, and the Division of Endocrinology and Early Journey Lake, um, our previous medical home for, for weight management, our clinical and our research team. We are so fortunate. Um, our relationship with clinical nutrition, and I think Pat was here somewhere. Um, there you are. Uh, as well as our physical therapy department, who do such amazing jobs. Um, with our, our kids, and I do just want to give a, a huge shout out to physical therapy, although I'm not, don't see anybody here, but physical therapy has always gone above and beyond for our kids and doing everything to make sure that our kids are successful in terms of their physical activity to get them across the finish line, and quite literally, because they ran the Manchester Road Race with a couple of our kids that wanted to do it after surgery, and physical therapy went to the race to make sure that they got there and did the race with them, and that's, I think, going well above and beyond, and kudos to them for that. I think most importantly, I want to thank our families that allow us to participate in their care. Um, it allows us to um, do all this research on them, which helps to improve the care for them, as well as families beyond um, after them. If you're, a oh, hello. if you're a pediatrician in the community, um, I do encourage you to check out our website. We are in the process of revamping it, but we do have multiple resources on there for community providers if you need tools for your um, office um, as well. And that's our contact information. And with that, I thank you for your time. And